My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to episode two of the 21st Century Creative. This week, I have something really special for you. My guest is Stephen Pressfield, author of The War of Art and a string of other best-selling books. Steve's given me a terrific interview in which he really lets rip about some of the myths about creativity that hold us back. So I'm expecting howls of protest as well as shrieks of joy in response to this one. Steve has also set you a great creative challenge at the end of the interview. So if you've ever wondered what it would be like to have Stephen Pressfield mentor you and set you assignments that would help you grow as a creator, today's your chance. Have a listen to the interview and take part in his challenge. Before I go any further, I'd like to say a big thank you for all the emails, tweets and comments about the first episode of the show. I'm sure you know how it feels when you work on a big creative project for months and months before it sees the light of day. You go through all kinds of stages. One day you're full of confidence, the next you're full of doubts. Well, I've been through all of that these past few months preparing the podcast, and it's been so nice to get such a positive response this week. I'm really thrilled to hear you're enjoying the show so far and looking forward to the rest of season one. A special thank you to those of you who've written to let me know you have subscribed to the show in iTunes. If you haven't done that yet and you'd like to take a moment to do it right now, it's a little thing that can make a big difference to the show. One of the things iTunes looks for is the number of subscribers, and so it can really help a new show like this become more visible in the iTunes store. Thanks also to everyone who took part in Scott Belsky's Creative Challenge last week. There are three copies of Scott's book, Making Ideas Happen, winging their way to the three lucky winners. And last weekend, I sent a bonus recording with my feedback on the challenge to everyone on the 21st Century Creative mailing list. So if you'd like to get the recording with feedback on this week's challenge, go to 21stcenturycreative.fm slash bonus. The final thank yous I'd like to say this week are to two very talented people who helped me produce the show. Firstly, Irene Hoffman, who designed the show's identity. Irene designs all my books, so you may recognise her iconic style from the covers of my books. Also, thank you to Javier Whaler, who composed all the music and the sound effects for the show. It's really important to me that the show has a distinctive sonic as well as visual identity, and it's been great to hear people telling me they're enjoying the music. Javier and his team are also responsible for all the sound production and editing, which thankfully leaves me free to focus on the content. On a personal note, I've just returned from a life-enhancing experience. I spent a week in the Orkney Islands off the north coast of Scotland, taking a class with the legendary voice teacher Kristin Linklater. 
we were learning how to recite some of the speeches and sonnets of William Shakespeare. Now, most of the group were professional actors who are a lot more extroverted than I am. So I was a little out of my comfort zone. I do aim to practice what I preach about leaning into your edge and stepping out of your comfort zone. And it was also terrific fun. I mean, I love Shakespeare. And having spent so many years reading him, it was so exciting to be up on the stage speaking the speech myself. In case you're wondering, I chose the famous speech from Richard III at the beginning of the play. Um, so you never know, I might record that and let you hear it someday. And you will definitely be hearing more about the Linklater voice work later in season one of the podcast. For now, I will just say, if you're an actor or if you use your voice professionally in any way, I can wholeheartedly recommend taking one of Kristin's classes. To learn more about her courses, go to linklatervoice.com. Right, on with the show. This podcast is called The 21st Century Creative, and today I'm going to look at the 21st century side of the equation. I'll start by reading a quotation you may recognize. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received, for good or for evil, in the superlative degree of comparison only. Fans of Charles Dickens will recognise the opening of A Tale of Two Cities. Dickens is looking back at the late 18th century when the novel is set, from the present period, which for him was the mid-19th century. And here we are looking back on Dickens's age from the early 21st century, and you could start a novel or an article with those very same words, and not look too much out of place. As the French say, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more it changes, the more it's the same thing. On the one hand, we have the enthusiasts for the 21st century. They tell us we are living at a time of incredible opportunity, with changes in society and technology opening up amazing new possibilities for creativity, collaboration, publishing and distribution, making art and making money. If you can just find your 1,000 true fans, you too can travel the world and live the life of your dreams as a creative, entrepreneurial, digital nomad ninja rock star. And you can do all of this because the means of production are in your pocket and on your desktop. Not like the bad old days when they were in the factories of big bad capitalists or the printing presses of publishers 
or the studios of record labels or Hollywood. The gatekeepers have gone away, and the creatives can come out to play. On the other hand is the voice of doom. The people telling us we are living in an age of trivia, with the attention spans of goldfish thanks to the internet and social media, where we spend more time answering email and posting on Facebook than doing meaningful work, where file sharing, piracy and the internet in general mean creators can't earn a living anymore. Musicians complain no one pays for music anymore. Photographers complain everyone's using stock photography so no one pays for real photography. Writers and publishers complain that Amazon and ebooks are destroying publishing and killing literature. Not to mention climate change, terrorism, economic insecurity, and all those robots coming to steal our jobs. Now, I'll admit I'm an enthusiast. You would be surprised if I were creating a podcast called The 21st Century Creative if I didn't think this was a time of opportunity and possibility for creatives. But I'm human. I can feel the pressure. I have lots to do. Sometimes it feels hard to keep up. Technology can be distracting and annoying. I can get depressed by stories in the news and anxious about what life will be like for my children when they grow up. I can feel the temptation to look back at the past and see it as a golden age, when there was a slower pace of life, free of distraction, making it easier to focus, when artists were valued and rewarded, and people paid for music and movies instead of stealing them, and so on. Now, one project I'm working on at the moment is a translation of Geoffrey Chaucer's long poem, Troilus and Chrysida into modern English verse from the original medieval English. It's really long and really difficult. We're talking 8,000 lines of rhyme royal, which is a strict seven-line stanza form. It takes concentration. It's not easy to carve out the time required. I have a business to run, family to look after, email to answer, and so on. When I start feeling the pressure... I'm tempted to think it was a little easier for Chaucer when he wrote the poem in the 14th century. In those days there was no printing press, let alone internet or phones or WhatsApp. Instead of email, a letter took days to cross the country, if it ever arrived at all. Compared to me, it seems like it was a lot easier for him to concentrate. I'm tempted to wonder if he'd have written such a long poem if he'd lived in 21st century London. But on the other hand, Chaucer had a day job as a royal customs inspector with some very difficult bosses to please. No one paid him to write poetry, so he had to do it in his spare time. He was living in a gatehouse tower above Aldgate in the city wall of London. It was really dark in that tower. The walls were five feet thick and there were only arrow slits and candles for light. There was no glass in the windows, of course, and no central heating. He would have had a fire, but it must have been freezing in winter. A few hundred feet from his tower, outside the city wall, was an open sewer, so it would have stank. Under the floor was the gateway, where a stream of people, animals and carts went in and out all day long so there was constant noise. Then in 1381, the famous Peasants' Revolt, 
led by Watt Tyler, would have passed through the gateway below, and it's possible Chaucer was at home as the peasants charged into the city below his feet. So any time I'm struggling to concentrate on my translation, I think of Chaucer sitting there, practically in the pitch dark, scratching away with his quill pen, with the stench of an open sewer in his nostrils, and hordes of noisy peasants attacking the gate beneath his feet, trying to find just the right word to polish a line of poetry. And I think, on balance, I've got the better deal. So, I am an enthusiast for the new era, but I'm not blind to the downside. I don't think this is a brave new world with no problems. In lots of ways, it's more challenging and unsettling than the good old days, whenever they were. If we look closely, we'll see that the pros and cons of our age are actually mirror images. The internet connects us, but distracts us. Technology makes things convenient, but it also makes us anxious. Amazon Kindle is the greatest opportunity for writers and the biggest threat. One person's entrepreneurial opportunity is another person's job insecurity. So wherever we're living, whenever we're living, whether the Middle Ages, Victorian times, the 21st century, or if you're listening to this in 200 years' time in an interstellar archive of curiosities from the known universe, it will always be the best of times and the worst of times. So what can we do about it? Next week, I'll look at this in more detail with a strategy you can apply to the big picture of your career as a 21st century creative. But for now, I'm going to focus on our attitude to the times we're in, because this is critical to everything we do. And this means no complaining. Complaining is a creativity killer. If you are complaining, you cannot be creating. If you are a serial complainer, that will become a dead weight, dragging you down as a creator. And it really doesn't matter how justified your complaint is. It won't change reality. So by clogging up your mind with complaints and stoking the negative feelings, you're shooting yourself in the foot as a creator. To help you stop complaining, here's a simple practice I learned from the monks at Amaravati Buddhist Monastery when I attended a retreat there years ago. It's called metta meditation. Now, metta translates as compassion or loving-kindness. You start by focusing your attention on your body and trying to feel compassion for its aches and pains. Then you focus outwards, towards your family and friends, wishing them well. Then colleagues and acquaintances. Then complete strangers, all the way out to the people you can't stand. These are your enemies, the people who hurt you in the past or who threaten you in the present. Now, realistically, you're not going to start feeling compassion for these people, at least not straight away. And it's even going to be a challenge to get to a place of acceptance, because it's really hard to accept someone you despise, someone who's hurt you, someone who threatens something you cherish. So, the retreat leader suggested, if we can't manage compassion or acceptance, we simply acknowledge this person's existence. We don't have to like them. 
We can carry on hating them or feeling revulsion or whatever, but we simply acknowledge that we share the planet with them. So try practising this with your biggest bugbears about 21st century life, whether that's Starbucks, email, Amazon, inequality, climate change, or the people who voted the other way to you. So, firstly, each time you encounter your bugbear, become aware of the temptation to complain and resist it. If you realise you've already started complaining, interrupt the complaint by switching your attention to what you can see and hear right around you in the moment. Secondly, instead of complaining, simply acknowledge the existence of whatever it is and acknowledge your own negative thoughts and feelings towards it without getting sucked into it. Keep practising this and notice the effect it has on you. If you're like me and a lot of people who practice this, what you're likely to discover is that because you're simply acknowledging, you're not resisting reality anymore. So you can be more focused, more present, more creative, and more resourceful. Because this practice doesn't mean you don't work to change your bugbear, whatever it is. What it does is change your state so that you have more choices about what you're going to do next. Over the past 20 years, I've coached hundreds of creatives, and I've noticed that the ones who succeed professionally, as well as creatively, are the ones who invest in their own development. Not only are they constantly feeding their inspiration and honing their artistic technique, they're also prepared to step out of their comfort zone and work on their personal development and their professional skills. How to manage their time. How to communicate their ideas. How to have difficult conversations. How to close a sale. How to deal with money. How to grow their network and how to attract an audience for their work. To help you do all of this and more, I've created an in-depth program, the 21st Century Creative Foundation Course, and I'm giving it to you for free. When I say in-depth, I mean it. There are 26 lessons, each one full of practical advice, plus a worksheet to help you apply the ideas to your own life and work. And yes... I'm giving you all 26 lessons for free. But to get the benefit of the course, you'll still need to make an investment of your time, of your effort, and on occasion, of your courage. Because you need to invest these things if you're to achieve anything worthwhile. As well as the course, you'll get exclusive access to the bonus recording I send out after every episode of the podcast with feedback on the creative challenges set by my guests. If you're serious about your professional development as a 21st century creative, and you want to start the course right now, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course and sign up with just an email address. That's 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course.
My guest today is Stephen Pressfield, best-selling author of a string of novels, including Gates of Fire, Tides of War, Killing Rommel, and The Legend of Bagger Vance, the last of which was made into a movie starring Matt Damon, Will Smith, and Charlize Theron. His historical novels are taught in U.S. military institutions, including West Point Academy, the Marine Corps School, and the Naval War College. Not content with all this, Steve has also written a series of books for creatives, where he reflects on his own journey and practice as a writer, and helps the rest of us become better and bolder creators. Whenever I start working with a new coaching client, one of the first questions I ask them is, have you read The War of Art yet? If they haven't, I send them a copy and tell them it's required reading. And I always get the same response. Where has this book been all my life? He nailed my problem. So, if you haven't read The War of Art yet, I urge you to grab a copy and read it as soon as possible. It's a short book, but one that can save you a huge amount of time and creative frustration, if you take it to heart. One of the things that makes The War of Art such a powerful book is the fact it's written by someone who has committed 100% to the creative life and has suffered the consequences. It's hard-won wisdom, and the book gives us glimpses of Steve's long apprenticeship as a writer wrestling his inner demons while struggling to find the time and money to write a series of novels that were then rejected over and over again by publishers. In his latest novel, The Knowledge, Steve gives us a lot more than glimpses of his former life. He describes The Knowledge as my real-life writer's coming-of-age story and the origin tale of the war of art. I asked Steve if he would be willing to talk about The Knowledge and to share his thoughts on the relationship between truth and fiction, and he generously agreed. It's a terrific interview where he not only shares some great lessons from his own experience, he also lets rip about some of the biggest myths about creativity that can hold us back. So whatever path you're on as a creator, I'm confident you'll find this a compelling lesson. Welcome, Steve. It's great to be with you, Mark. On the inside page of every one of your books, you can see two strands of your writing in the list of your fiction and your non-fiction books. But the line between the two is often blurred. You've written novels based on true historical events, novels based on imagination or conjecture, and novels that are a mixture of true and imaginary events. You've also written non-fiction that reads like fiction, such as The Lion's Gate. In Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit, You even say at one point that non-fiction is fiction. And on your blog recently, you've written that fiction is the truth. I think your latest book, The Knowledge, is the one that draws the two strands together. But before we come to that, how do you see the relationship between fiction and non-fiction in the big picture of your writing? That's a great question, Mark. I mean, some of my nonfiction has been, or a lot of it has been sort of self-help, right? Like the war of art, and yeah. which is yeah. in many ways sort of an overt expression of the theme that's in almost all of the novels. 
And the theme is sort yeah. of that, that life is a battle or life is a war. Um, and particularly um, an internal war, as you know, as a poet, and as, as every writer knows that sat down in front of the blank page, it, it is a war inside your own head to, to be able to have the discipline and the patience and everything to, to do the work. Um, so um, that's my sort of self-help nonfiction has really been, like I say, just the overt statement of that. Here's what's going on inside my head. Yeah. Now, mm -hmm. if you... Do you want to talk about the Lion's Gate a little about what I what I yeah yeah I'm really curious about that yeah um, yeah what I what I mean by nonfiction is fiction is that um, it you you need to tell it as a story nonfiction if it's a memoir that you're writing you know or you know the true story of your grandmother you know and fighting the the Nazis or something like that. Um, it needs to be told according to the yeah. same rules of storytelling that a fiction writer would use. In other words, the piece needs, if you want people to actually read it, you know, right. and be interested and keep turning the pages and not stop after page, you know, 32. Um, meaning, when I say it needs to be structured like fiction, it has, it has to have a climax, it has to have a hero, it has to have a theme, it has to... It has to have an inciting incident in the beginning that kind of hooks the reader. It has to have, you know, a number of acts, act one, act two, act three, or maybe five acts or something like that, like a drama, where the progressive complications unspool through the middle, and it has to pay off in a climax. And um, so when I was writing The Lion's Gate, which is about the Six-Day War, the Arab-Israeli War of 1967, I, went, I, I interviewed about 70 Israeli fighter pilots and tank commanders and that sort of thing. And so I had this enormous pile of stuff, you know, tape recordings. And I basically just thought of it as a, as a novel. I used the same, not that I made anything up, I couldn't make anything up, but I, I definitely designed it around a theme. I figured out what the theme was. I figured out how, what the climax would have to be. And I structured it just as if I were um, doing a movie for 20th Century Fox or doing a novel for Random House. You see, I can imagine some people listening to this and experiencing, if you'll pardon the word, experiencing a little resistance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they might say, well... <laughs> That's crazy, yeah. And say, well, you know, but surely if we're telling the truth, you have to tell the honest, plain, unvarnished well, truth. I'm not saying you're not telling the truth. All I'm saying is that it has to be structured in a certain way if you want people to read it. Right. For instance, um, if you look at the typical um, biography of somebody, or if let's say you or I decided we were going to write the biography of our, our grandmother who sailed from Ireland as a young girl and moved to America and blah, 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 right? The typical lame yeah. biography starts out with so-and-so was born, you know, in Dorset, whatever the date was, and then they describe the cottage they lived in, and then they went to school here, and already, if I'm a yeah. reader, I'm sound asleep, you know? And... Uh, yeah. Whereas, and now that's the truth, right? You're telling the truth, but you're telling the truth in, in yeah. a, in a, you're violating the rules of storytelling in telling that truth. 
because you're just going chronologically from A to Z. And uh, that's just not a very exciting way of telling a story. If you look at any great story, you know, The Godfather or Hamlet or anything, I mean, would we start with uh, Hamlet with uh, he was born? And then we talk about him going to school. <laughs> he did that and that, you know? No. It's a, it's, it's a bit better with the ghost coming in. Yeah, isn't so, it? <laughs> works a little better, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who was it who said like life is no drama is life with all the boring bits exactly, taken out? Exactly, but it's even more than that. It's 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 structured in such a way that that the story starts with Hamlet's ghost appearing and telling him, "Hey, your dad didn't die a natural death; he was murdered, and you, buddy, you've got to you know avenge it." You know, so that if we're readers or if we're uh, sitting in the theater, we're hooked by that. Now the story has some propulsion, some momentum, and we're going to sit still. We're going to say to ourselves, ooh, I can't wait to hear what happens next. That storytelling. Okay. Okay. So so that storytelling skill and structure is what hooks us. You know, we're, we're in trance. We're glued to our seats or we're glued to the book. And we want to know what happens next. And it, and it gives us excitement. And by the way, Mark, that doesn't have to violate the truth if you're doing nonfiction. Right. You just pick something right. that truly happened, but that is an inciting incident, what a dramatist would call an inciting incident. But does it give us more than excitement? I mean, you know, you've, you've used the word the truth quite a lot. Is there some aspect of the truth that comes out through this structure? Great. That's a great question. It's a great question. And the answer, as you know, is yes, yes, yes. Um, because in... In an inciting incident, in, in other words, that moment that hooks you in a story, when the story begins, when it literally begins, when you pass the point that is what you might call setup, in if it's a true great inciting incident, the theme of the story is embedded in, in that inciting incident. And not only is the theme embedded, but the climax of the story is embedded in the exciting incident. To give you like a really crass example, you know those movies uh, with Liam Neeson called Taken? Where his daughter daughter gets kidnapped, right? And there's a... Right, right. For those people uh, who are listening who haven't seen the movie Taken, um, Liam Neeson's daughter gets kidnapped by some bad guys. It's the very start of the movie. That's kind of the setup. And then somehow he, they call him or he calls them or something, or they demand a ransom. And he says to them on the, on the, on the phone call, uh, he basically tells them that he's a, he's a killer himself. You know, he, he was like a, I don't know, a spy or something. Like that. He says, I've got a very special set of skills and I'm going to use them to bring you to justice unless you give my daughter back to me right now. And, uh, the guy on the villain on the other on the other end says, uh, "Good luck," and hangs up. So that's the inciting incident of that thing. Now we're sort of hooked, but also built into that inciting incident is the climax, in the sense that as we're movie make, moviegoers and are watching this, we know the climax is going to be Liam Neeson catches up to the bad guys and he, you know, it gets his revenge, right? And that's in fact yeah. what pulls us through the story. So anyway, that's another sort of storytelling principle. So just so we're clear about the terminology, the inciting incident is is something that happens that gets the story rolling. It gives the main character their motivation. Yes. And it also, um, it's the moment 
when the hero, the main character, acquires his or her purpose. For instance, when Hamlet's ghost appears, when his father appears to him and tells him, right, you're, you're, yeah. I was murdered by my brother, your uncle, and he's now sitting on the throne of Denmark. At that point, Hamlet acquires his purpose, right? He has got to bring about justice somehow, right? Right, and right. And it's another thing that in story, a storytelling principle that obviously propels us into the story because the story is, is as you know, Mark, it's, a, it's the hero, the protagonist, overcoming obstacles to achieve his desire yeah. or his want or his need. So the inciting incident is that moment, like with Liam Neeson. The phone call tells him his daughter's kidnapped. Now we know what his purpose is. I'm going to get my daughter back. And that's really the rest of the movie. So the structure really reveals the purpose or the meaning, you know, the, the inner truth. Yes. And this, the structure is, is, is based around the theme of what the story is about. So let's say the Lionsgate, let's say I'm... I'm, I'm I or anybody who's going to tell the story of uh, the Six-Day War. Um, so it, it has to sort of start with the, the enemy, five Arab nations, rolling their tanks up to the border of Israel and declaring that they're up, their aim is to wipe Israel off the map. So when Israel sort of gets its act together over the feuding sides of should they appeal to the, the UN, blah, 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 blah. And they decide, okay, we're gonna have a we're gonna attack first. That's the start of the, the start of the story. So if I'm telling that true thing as a story, I'm thinking uh, you know, I'm it's nonfiction, but I'm thinking of it like fiction, and I'm thinking I need an inciting incident, I need a climax, and I'm gonna structure this vast pile of material that I have in that way. Okay, well then that brings us quite neatly to the the knowledge because here, you know, I mean, obviously I've, I've read the book and I've read your, your writing about it. As I understand it, this book was born out of a, a long struggle that you had to express a personal truth, you know, or to tell your own story. And, well, you, you t maybe you could say a bit more about how you resolve uh, yeah, okay. So it's so hard to talk about something of your own stuff. But uh, um, the knowledge is a novel set in New York City in the 1970s at a yeah. time when in my real life I was actually driving a taxi cab and struggling to, to, uh, to be a writer, to learn how to be a writer. And the knowledge, of course, being a Brit, you know, it refers to the, the knowledge of London that all London taxi drivers have to learn. That's before right. they yeah. can get their yeah. certificate or whatever it is. And and so the book started, again, we're talking about fiction and nonfiction, Mark, here. This is it started with a, a real life events that truly happened to me as being a uh, struggling to be a writer. And from there I sort of used that as kind of the spine and the theme of the story. And then I proceeded to kind of tart it up with uh, invented stuff that would that heightened the drama, so right. it became fiction, even though it started as truth. Right, and you know because I think you said a lot of it was about you. You know, I mean, the, the struggling writer. It's kind of hard to make that dramatic or cinematic. right. That's why it had to be tarted up. Yeah, 
Right, right. So before we go further into that, then I mean, maybe you could talk a bit, because you've said it's, it's like the origin story of the War of Art, which most people listening to this will have read the War of Art. It's been such a kind of, almost like a talisman, I think, for a lot of creatives, that book, that it really articulates a deep truth about the struggle that we have as, as creators in coming to terms with the, the forces of it, internal resistance, you know, when we set ourselves a big creative challenge or dream. What made you want to kind of unpack that and come up with an origin ah, story? That's another it? great question, Mark. Um, it, it really was, um, let's see, how can I say this? Um, I've been trying to do this for about 40 years, actually, tell this story. Um, the, the origin story of the War of Art really is, uh, is, is a real personal story that has to do with um, uh, my uh, marriage at the time and, and, um, and some bad things that I did that I felt, you know, terrible about my whole life and that I wanted to, um, if not redeem myself from, at least sort of express. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of my personal motivation for wanting to do this. I've been trying for like, you know, decades to find a way to tell that story and uh, always without success. And at some point, um, you know, about about a year and a half ago, I thought I had kind of an idea of how of of, uh, that would work, of a way to tell that story, to fictionalize it and make it work. And when I say make it work, I mean, make it, had I told it straight out, it would be um, boring, interior, um, self-pitying, etc. So it needed to be um, fictionalized in a way to make it sort of fit for human consumption. I like Shakespeare's phrase. He says, the truest poetry is the most feigning. Yes, absolutely. That's what I mean when I say that nonfiction is fiction. That's one another meaning. Mm. So... I mean, how did you go about the, I love your phrase, tarting it up. What was the principle that you used? Because I know that you didn't just, you know, invent aliens and spaceships <laughs> and, you know, magical powers and stuff just, just to kind of give, give us a load of pyrotechnics. As I understand it, you've used some very important principles about how you would dramatise well, um, it. To answer that, it's another great question, Mark. Um, let me cite another example first um, of tarting something up. And that it's a great um, example, I think. It's um, Hemingway's book, The Sun Also Rises. And if you remember the book, it's about, um, takes place after World War I. And it has, uh, protagonist is an American journalist named Jake Barnes. And he's in love with a British um, uh, titled lady named Lady Brett Ashley. And it's, uh, it's kind of a story of, dissolute ex- expatriates who have all been kind of ruined by the war, by their experiences in the war. And it's the, uh, afraid the lost generation, right? Yeah. And the events are basically, they're not that interesting. It's like a few people, a couple of guys and Lady Brett Ashley, they go from Paris where they're living to the Pamplona in Spain for the running of the bulls and the bullfights. And, you know, some stuff happens along the way. But, so it's nothing out of the ordinary, but how Hemingway tarted it up was he gave his hero, Jake Barnes, who's the narrator of the story, the American journalist, he gave him an emasculating war wound. 
And in other words, that's fiction, right? Yeah. And but it's again, it's fiction on theme because it was it was the it was the external expression of what had happened to these these young men in the war. They'd been ruined by the war. So that was, to me, absolutely a legitimate way to heighten the drama of, you know, a basically a a normalish story. Mm. So that's 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 one way to take it. Hemingway was dealing with an internal story with what had happened to his generation because of the experiences they had in the war. And he made it external by giving his protagonist this emasculating wound that was symbolic of. Okay, so back to my story, The Knowledge, which was about uh, the boring part is about a struggling writer trying to finish a book and to sort of redeem himself from uh, failures that way in the past that had uh, deeply hurt his young wife. Um, So what I did was I sort of, built a second story on top of that of um, where the character that's based on me was driving a cab gets hired by his boss at the cab company to follow the boss's wife to tail her like a detective and from there on a bunch of as you know a bunch of sort of crazy you know private eye-ish type of stuff happens but what 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 turns out to to make the story fiction is that the boss turns out to be a gangster who's dealing with the same issues of guilt and redemption that the character that's me is dealing with. But he's dealing with them on a very, very visual level with guns and murders and stuff like that. And so the way the story works emotionally is a bond forms between the, the writer character, me, and the gangster character, my boss. and sort of in almost in a Christ-like way, the gangster kind of dies for my sins. And that's how redemption is produced in the story. And so it sounds kind of boring when you talk about it, but I, but I think it works. Um, but that's how I tarted it up. Right. And the thing that kind of sweeps you away, or swept me away at least, while I was reading it, was it's got that ring of truth about it. You know, it was like, I said to my wife, it was like watching one of those films about New York from the 70s, like Taxi Driver or, or something. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. you have all these authentic period details, which you'd obviously lived and observed and remembered, and you get swept along in it. And as the, as the events get bigger and more dramatic, well, because I'd bought into the world already, I was up for the adventure. I love the idea that it's an extension of the truth, and maybe it's just, it's like a what-if this had happened yeah, as well. It it's like it's it's more like an as well, isn't it? Instead of a and bolting something on, it's it feels organic. Well, you know, I, I hope that I hope that's the that's the way it works. Let me uh, throw in one other principle for our our writer listeners that, yeah, uh, in terms of charting up that story, charting up the truth. What I was really doing was I was making the internal external. Right. In other words, I was taking. The interior drama of a writer struggling to write a book, which, as you say, is not cinematic, it's boring, it's tedious, it's, you know, but by making it a sort of a a, uh, a private eye story, 
I could bring in things like car chases and guns and, you know, shady women and things like that and 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 make make it um, external, make it visual, make the make the invisible visible. And another thing that helped me tremendously in working on this is my my partner and editor, Sean Coyne. When he read the first draft of this, uh, he said, oh, this is exactly like the Big Lebowski. Yeah, you know, the, the knowledge is kind of whimsical, like the Big Lebowski, right? And yeah. it also, the, the, the concept of the Big Lebowski with Jeff Bridges is it's basically a detective story, only instead of a hard bitten private eye, it's like this lovable stoner slacker, the dude, right, who kind of stumbles his way through a mystery, <laughs> right? He gets hired find yeah. somebody then he gets hired to find somebody else he gets beaten up blah 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 so when sean said that to me about this story i said ah that's exactly right the character and that sort of gave me which i hadn't even realized what the genre of the story was the genre was a private eye story and uh so that helped enormously from a writer's point of view and i'll talk more about that if you want me to but uh yeah, you know. please do, Steve. Go ahead. Okay, this is uh, I'm I'm a big believer in genre. That right. every story falls into a genre, by which I mean it's it's a, it's a love story, or it's a thriller, or it's a western, or it's a sci spy movie, or whatever it is. And every genre has conventions. It has it has obligatory scenes, beats that you have to hit. If it's a Western, you have to have a shootout at the end, right? Between the guy with the black hat and the guy with the right. right. If it's a love story, the lovers have to come together, then they have to go apart, and then they come together in the end, right? And yeah. um, so for me, writing the knowledge, I'm sort of groping and struggling with material that's partly true, partly fictionalized, et cetera. Once I realized as a writer that the genre is a private eye story, now I'm halfway home because I can sort of say to myself, well, what are the conventions of a private eye story? What do, you, what do we have to have in here? And for an example, one of the things that happens in every private eye movie is the private eye gets beat up, right? Um, think about Chinatown, Jack Nicholson, they cut his nose, and he goes out to the orchard, he gets beaten up by the guys out there. And right, if you think right. of the big Lebowski, he gets beaten up like three or four times. And <laughs> yeah. So, so I just, I literally said to myself as I'm structuring this, well, I got to have my character, a character based on me. I got to have him beaten up at least once. So I, then I figured out, well, how am I going to do that? And then, um, another thing that always happens in private eye movies in this genre is, is the private eye is hired first to do one thing you know, find so-and-so, right? Yeah. And then somewhere halfway through the, the movie, he, he gets hired to find somebody else. Like it's usually, he's hired to find a woman. He finds the woman. And then the woman says, let me give you twice as much money to find somebody else, right? Which yeah. happens in the big Lebowski and in Chinatown and everything else. So I thought, well, I got to have that scene too. And that helps me enormously. So I'm just saying that for our writers in the audience, that uh, if you can identify the genre of the piece you're working on, and sometimes it's two or more genres, sometimes they're mixed together, sometimes yeah. it's a Western and it's also science fiction, um, 
but that will help you because then you can go, you know the certain conventions of the genre that you've got to hit. So you, once you identify the, the genre, you actually think, well, what are these scenes that I have to have in this? And, you, and that actually becomes a guide for exactly. you. Exactly. You know, just like if you and I were sailing to Tahiti, and somebody yeah. says, well, you know, you have to go to Honolulu first, and then you have to, you know, you catch the current and so and so and so and so, you know, and, and uh, you know, that gives us a chart that we can follow. We, we obviously know that we have to, if we're leaving Los Angeles, we have to head west. We can't head east, right? Right, Well, I right. suppose we could if we were Columbus, but. Yeah, you want to get a long way around, yeah. So, okay, Steve, so I'm imagining our, our writer listener here, you know, s- sitting in the garret with the typewriter and <laughs> et cetera. The poor we, bastard, yes. Right, and, and, and we've already had the objection that surely I have to tell the plain unvarnished truth, and we've demolished that with the idea of structure and drama. But now I can imagine him coming up and saying, well, hang on a minute, what's all this about genre and, and scenes I have to write? Can't I just, ex- can't I express myself? Isn't this going to be a, a restriction on my creativity? <laughs> That's another great question. And of course, the answer to that is that it's these um, um, restrictions that bring out your, your creativity. Um, I mean, Shakespeare wrote according absolutely to restrictions, right? right? Three-act yeah. structure or five-act structure. You know, he if, if he were here sitting with us, he would he would tell us, you know, that the restrictions are what made his stuff great. You know, the, the creativity comes in knowing when you can bend the restrictions, when you can come up with something new and tricky, but also in coming up just with something great that um, – you know, a great way to do an obligatory scene that nobody's seen before. We've all seen a million car chases, but if you can come up with a great car chase, that really, that really, uh, that really helps. I mean, um, I forgot what movie it was. You remember the, the Steve McQueen movie Bullet? Mm. Oh, it was a great movie from like the 50s. And it, it had a, a car chase through the streets of San Francisco with Steve McQueen driving a Mustang convertible. And it was, you know, hilly streets that were leaping, bumping, 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 right? Then someone, I can't remember what movie this was, but I think it was a Clint Eastwood movie where they had another car chase, but it was the, the car that was doing the chasing was a model car and it was loaded with a bomb. And the one, the hero is fleeing from this and this, this bomb car is trying to get underneath his car to blow up. And that was, that, that scene was like a genre convention, right? A car chase in a cop movie. But because they came up with this wonderfully clever idea of having a, a toy car with a bomb in it, it really, it really made it terrific. But let me say one other thing. I, I know, like you say, I'm sure a lot of the writers that are listening to this are, are saying things like that. Why do I have to follow these rules or why, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I'm going to say something a little hardcore here. If you think you're being creative by breaking the rules, you're cutting your own throat. It just, it just doesn't work. Stories work for a certain reason because we are, our psyche, the human psyche, needs has a built-in structure of story receptors and they're 
in, in rough terms, they're based on the hero's journey, on the various myths that Joseph Campbell and C.G. Jung have identified. And the human brain, the human psyche, just, you know, that's the way it wants a story to be, whether it's the Iliad or the Christ story or any story you want to think about. We can bend it, yes, this way and that way, but within reason, we have to follow these these structures because we're human beings and that's the way the human mind works. And I would venture to say, we talk about resistance, that one of the great forms of resistance that destroys writers' careers, I mean, destroys their lives and their careers, is their refusal, their egomaniacal refusal to play by the rules, to learn what storytelling is, what drama is, and to, and to operate within those rules. I think it's a form of resistance of self-destruction and self-sabotage to say, oh, I'm so freaking creative that I'm going to you know, break the rules and, and, and just do something that nobody's ever seen before. And then people wonder why nobody wants to read it, you know, and nobody wants to make it into a movie. There's a reason. Sorry, I got off on a rant there, Mark, but... Uh, I love it, Steve. Music to my ears. I mean, you know, one of, gosh, there's several things coming up for me. One, one is the great quote I love from Banksy, you know, the artist, yeah. who said, uh, most artists are prepared to make any sacrifice for their art, apart from learning to draw. <laughs> That's a great one. That's you know? Uh, and, I mean, you know, the idea of originality is really quite a recent one if you look back at the history of art and writing and storytelling going back thousands of years the idea that you would somehow break all the rules and and reinvent things overnight it's a very very late idea you know go back to shakespeare again and he he and his chums they were all they weren't trying to be original they were trying to do something that accorded to classical models you know that the past was held to be the gold standard not not the future and i think i I would say that like if you think about art, modern art, um, where they have completely broken away from, you know, the classical or representational painting. But, and I'm not an expert in this, but I guarantee you, if we had a painting before us right now that was nothing but one color, one tone, so that it looked like, what is this? Is some guy just took red and put it on a canvas? If we would speak to the artist, he would tell us and make it clear to us how that followed classical forms in some crazy way, you know, that you and I might not see right off the bat. I'm assuming that that this thing, that the painting worked as a painting and really was art and wasn't just junk. So in other words, you can be wildly creative and wildly original, but under underlying it all that are the same rules. And you have to learn them. It's like Banksy says. Well, yeah. I mean, for me as a poet, the kind of poetry I tend to write, tends to be quite formal and traditional in its structure. You know, I use meter, I use rhyme, I use sonnets or, you know, iambic pentameters and all of that stuff. And there's a lot of people who will just say, you know, that's really, that's old hat. We've reinvented, you know, we've we've thrown all that away. And I'm thinking, really? Hundreds, thousands of years of poetic practice and it's just, it's really not worth our consideration? You know, and it's like, you, you know, you're artist example one reason that that artist would be able to tell us is because they love art so much that they would have consumed you know they would have looked at all the other you know the the whole history of art just as any great 
poet will have read, you know, the, the great works of the past. And, you know, the same with a novelist. I mean, if you don't love the art, why are you practicing? And I would bet too, Mark, that if we got out like some avant-garde poetry, the farthest out there is, and showed it to you, that you'd be able to show us how it, it might seem like it's breaking all the rules, but it isn't, you know, because you, you know what you're talking about. I don't. But I'm sure you would you would be able to show us how it did, you know, work within, you know, it, it obviously broke some rules, but it stayed within the, you know, cosmic structure that works. Am I right? Well, you know, well I would like to think so, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, T.S. Eliot, who's kind of the, one of the poster boys for modernism and, you know, shattering the old forms, one of his quotes that stayed with me was, and people were talking about free verse as opposed to the uh -huh. supposedly chained verse of the past. And Eliot said, look, there is no such thing as free verse. If you're writing, then the tradition's always going to be there. And not, not just the tradition, but just kind of the principles of how language operates. There's, there's certain effects, there's certain principles that are naturally going to affect the reader and therefore the writer. Yes. So you can't kind of escape that. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to a full mailbox of protest when this goes out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, staying with the knowledge, yeah, and you've written a great series on the blog, which I'll link to in the, the notes for this show, about how you wrote the knowledge and the relationship between truth and fiction in it. And one of the things that intrigued me is where you said that certain characters in the knowledge were designed to represent aspects of Stretch, the main character, his character in struggle. So the cat, Teaspoon, represents the muse. Um, the gangsters who represent, you know, who beat him up and give him a hard time represent different aspects of distraction. But, I mean, it doesn't read like the kind of allegory that we get in something like say, The Pilgrim's Progress, where he's really hitting us over the head with names <laughs> right, like right, The right. Giant Despair and The Slough of right, Despond. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of feel like you're being prodded to get the lesson. You know, I never really felt that. I mean, to be honest, when I first read the book, I, I enjoyed the book. I got carried away by the story. And it was, you know, only when I looked on the blog that I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah, Teaspoon and the Muse. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, what kind of level do you expect us as a reader? Do you expect us to get this, this kind of theme? I, I can say for myself as, as a reader or as a moviegoer that a lot of times I don't get it at all. You know, I don't get it consciously. If I watch The Godfather, uh, I'm not necessarily aware that Fredo represents one form of, of, uh, of the, the, the young prince and Sonny represents another, and Michael represents another, and, and the godfather himself represents, you know, the king, whatever. Uh, but un unconsciously, I'm getting it. And I think that's how anybody experiences, you know, a, a narrative or, or, or a piece of art. But I think from, from the point of view of the writer, in fact, I'm just reading right now. Have you heard about the... The Godfather Notebooks, I think it's called. It just came out. No. Oh, this is great. It's Francis Ford Coppola put it together. Apparently, he kept notebooks when he was adapting Mario Puzo's book, The Godfather, to the movie. And they wow. just brought it out. It's, you can get it on Amazon or any place. It's really a quality, like a $50 piece. And he explains exactly how he did ex just what we're talking about here how he figured out what michael represents and what fredo represents really and all that sort of stuff and and structured the scenes absolutely according to that but it is a and um you know a storytelling principle that 
Um, the protagonist embodies the theme, like Hamlet embodies a theme, or or Odysseus embodies a theme in the Odyssey, or uh, Jake Barnes embodies the theme in Sun Also Rises, and that the subsidiary characters, the surrounding cast, each one embodies their own a different aspect of the theme. Like everybody in The Godfather embodies an aspect of of the sort of uh, secret society within a greater society, a crime, you know, family. Um, and uh, so as a, again, I'm, I'm sure the readers are saying, this is another rule, it's another formula, where is this guy getting this stuff? This guy will never <laughs> do that, you know. And I remember when I first kind of heard this stuff, I thought the same thing. I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm way too creative for that. But when you start to study what works and you see, you know, movies or books that you love and how they really work and they affect you emotionally. And you start to, to analyze this, the narrative architecture, you go, holy cow, that's how Shakespeare did it. Oh my God. He did it in Lear. He did it in Macbeth. He did it in Hamlet and it works. Um, now going back to the knowledge for a minute, as I'm, as I was, as, as you said, Mark, the, the cat, the character, my character has a cat in this story. Yeah. And um, in real life, I did have a cat, and a lot of the stuff that happened to the cat <laughs> happened in real life. But about halfway through the story, I sort of asked myself, "Well, what does this cat represent? He's got to represent something." And I and I real and one of the things in in real life, I'm getting into too much detail, I know, Mark, but I'll, in real life, my cat used to curl up next to my typewriter on the left side of my typewriter so that the uh -huh. carriage would go over his head, pass back and forth over his head really? as I typed. And he would sit there for hours. And, and so I had that in the knowledge before I, before I even asked myself, well, what does the cat represent? And so, and suddenly I realized, well, he's, he is, uh, stretches inspiration. He's the, he's his muse. Um, he's his one ally in this struggle against, you know, against the forces of resistance. So to beat this dead horse a little further, when Sean, my partner, my editor read the first draft, uh, the cat, his name is Teaspoon, had not been kidnapped in that draft. And he said to me, oh, you got to have him kidnapped. He says, the gangsters have got to take Teaspoon. And uh, he said, it'll be like the carpet in the Big Lebowski, where Lebowski <laughs> wants to get his carpet. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think Sean, I think Sean said that completely on instinct. But, but when you start to analyze it, you go, oh, if the cat represents stretches, the writer's inspiration, and the gangsters represent distraction, then the gangsters have to kidnap the cat. And right. Stretch has to have his purpose to get back the cat, just like the big Lebowski had to get back his carpet. And uh, so you can say, well, this is overanalyzing, this is whatever, but it works. Even if the reader doesn't get it consciously, I mean, enough people have read this book telling me about how oh, I was, they had to get the cat back. I was, you know, consumed by that. And that was why, because they realized the cat represented more than just the cat. And I'm curious about this because you say it was in the process of writing and it was a cat 
Teaspoon was based on a real-life cat, right? Yes. But it was only when you looked at Teaspoon through the, the lens of your story that you asked yourself, what does the cat represent? And you didn't ask that when you were living with the cat. Exactly. Exactly. And even when I, you would think that when I was doing the outline of the story, locking it out of my mind, I would, I would come to that realization, oh, the cat represents such and such. But it wasn't until I was like halfway through that, that I started to even ask that question, which I think is, is the way that a lot of writers work, and I certainly work, is on instinct, first on instinct, yeah. and then I go back and analyze and, and ask myself all these you know, storytelling questions. Are the principles being followed? Again, you know, I think because analysis gets a, bra- a bad rap among creators, but actually it seems to me like this is a really creative process for you, that actually going back and having a second look and thinking, well, hang on, what does that mean? What It, it leads you deeper into the story, deeper into the world of, you know, whatever the truth is that you're trying to create. I mean, this um, exercise, Mark, is really what an editor would do for you normally. Right. Only the writer sort of writes completely on instinct, turns in this huge pile of pages, and the editor, the process that the editor goes through, he does the analysis or she does the analysis, and she will say in her own mind, hmm, what does this character represent? And then da 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 And then we'll come back with notes to the writer saying, I think you should consider this. And uh, But I'm a believer that you have to be your own editor because we don't, it's hard to find editors, you know? And even if you have a great editor, you, you should do as much of that work yourself first. So I do try to sort of, first I'll spew it out on instinct, and then I'll kind of pull back to the 30,000 foot level altitude and kind of look at it with fresh objective eyes and see, does this thing adhere to storytelling principles that I know work? And if not, what do I need to do? And I think that analysis really helps. It, it helps you fix things. And let me get off on another rant here while we're talking. Go for it. Go for um, it. Sean, who's a wonderful editor, my partner, yeah, partner in Black Irish Books, has told me these horror stories that turn my hair white, if it wasn't white already, of working with, over his career, working with writers where um, – they will write, you know, this enormous book, years of work, and it'll be flawed, violating certain principles. Sean will read it. He'll, he'll give them notes, tell them, you know, here's what you have to do. You have to fix this, this, and this. And the writers will not do it. And the book invariably fails to find a publisher. And uh, that is, again, to me... Resistance, self-sabotage. The writer's ego becomes so attached to, um, you know, his first pass or whatever that he, he can't pull back and make changes. And that's sort of the real moment that separates the men from the boys, separates the amateurs from the professionals. Um, I read a great quote from Steven Spielberg the other day. He said something like, most ideas are bad ideas. And it takes a lot of work to make them into good ideas. <laughs> That's why the process takes so long. Mm. And what he meant by that, I think, is that we all kind of spew it out first. And then we then we go, oh, we got to fix this. I got to change this. I got to cut that. I got to move that over here. But a lot of times writers will 
refuse to do that. They'll just resist. They'll say, this is it. I love it. This is the way it is. Take it out to the publishing companies the way it is. And then it, take, it gets taken out and nobody buys it. And, and they, it's the writer's fault. It's the writer's fault for not making the changes that need to be made. Yeah. I think it's going back to one of your key terms, you know, turning pro. One of the signs of the pro is that they will take the feedback. Yes. But they also know where to get it. I mean, you don't, you can't get feedback from all and sundry. I mean, you've got true, to. True, true. But, but I, I think it, you're right. It's really hard to develop if yeah. you don't have that source or if you can't become it for yourself, if there's nobody out there. It's really them. hard. You're absolutely right. To find somebody that, that, that can actually read and, and give you a good read, it's really rare. One in a hundred, I would say. And certainly not your wife and not your friends and not the people in your writer's group. They're a bunch of idiots. I'll take that blanket statement right now. Um, it's really hard to find somebody. In many ways, you just have to train yourself. Yeah, and if you're lucky enough to find someone, then listen. I mean, for me, that person's Mimi Calvati. So she's one of the ah. the top top poets here in the UK. That you've got somebody, and- Mark. And she is also the most amazing reader of a poem. You know, like she will, there's been times where she's told me about the poem I was trying to write instead of the one that I actually wrote. Uh, that's, that's a great answer. <laughs> does that? It's great, Mark. So great to have that. And I, I just count that one of the great fortunes of my life that I had. I encountered her feedback. Yeah. When she said, "You send her a fruit basket," okay? Right. Right. Will do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We've slayed plenty of sacred cows. Here's something I think would be really good for us to kind of finish on, if we can do it without giving away too much of the climax of the knowledge. Because one of the other principles that, you know, you've talked about is the all is lost moment. Yes. But what do you mean by that? And and how does that, as far as you can talk about it in the knowledge without spoiling the surprise, okay. how does it play you're gonna, out? Your mailbox is going to fill up with more angry people when I talk about this. <laughs> um, I had never heard of the all is lost moment until I got to Hollywood as a screenwriter. And, uh, you know, you'd, you'd turn in a script or you'd write a script on spec and, and, uh, people with the executives or directors or whatever would say, well, where's the all is lost moment? What's the all is lost moment here? And I'd go, what? What's that? (laughs) And the all is lost moment in Hollywood parlance usually comes about three quarters of the way through the movie and or, or maybe sometime around the start of the third act. And it's the moment when the protagonist is as far away from his goal as possible. And if you look for it in, in the movies, you will see it in almost every movie there is. Um, when Luke Skywalker is, is attacking the Death Star in his X-Wing, right? Uh-huh. Somehow the, the defenses are too strong and he can't get through. Oh, my God, the yeah. star is going to destroy the universe. That's the all is lost moment. Uh-huh. Um, and the all is lost moment is almost always followed immediately by an epiphany, an epiphanal moment, I call it, where either the hero, him or herself, comes up with some sort of a... Uh, Something uh, that changes the parameter or some external force comes in. So in Star Wars, the first Star Wars, Obi-Wan Kenobi sort of appears as a magical spirit and says, trust the force, Luke, trust the force, right? 
And Luke turns off his targeting mechanism on his, whatever you call it, his instrument panel. Yeah. And he just goes in on instinct and he blows up the death zone, right? Now, that's obviously, I'm sure your listeners are going, oh, what dribble, you know? But it's a, I'm just citing that as an example. So um, there, in, in at least in movies, there's always an all is lost moment, and there's always a an epiphany moment immediately after that. I could give you other examples, but I won't bore you to death. Now, what was our what was our question again, Mark? What so was it was about in the knowledge. What can you say about it in in relation to okay, the knowledge? And great. actually, the knowledge, the the true events of of that book that happened to me were my all is lost moment in my life my primary i mean we all have hundreds of all is lost moments but that was the that was my primary all is lost moment and and also the epiphany moment that came right after that and what that was in real life was i finished my third novel the first two never had been, hadn't been published couldn't find a publisher they were no good this is like over like a 12-year period of working on it, working on these books. I finished the third one, and it, too, didn't get published. And that was – and I knew that I just didn't have the strength to do another one. And that was my real all-is-lost moment in my life. I really was at the point of thinking, should I hang myself or should I blow my brains out? You know, I was with a gun. You know, I was trying to figure out what form of suicide wouldn't make people – wouldn't inconvenience people too much. And my sort of epiphany moment in real life was to forget, to stop trying to write novels and move to Hollywood and try to write movies, and which I did, and which kind of turned the corner for me in terms of I, I, I became a pro after that. I kind of really took the craft seriously and started to learn. Um, so... I've sort of, re on my blog, I kind of refer to this book, The Knowledge, as my all is lost moment. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that's, what it, that's what it was. So, and, the, and that moment of finishing the book and having it go down in flames happens in the knowledge and is the all is lost moment in the knowledge, in the book. And I'm curious, you say that the all is lost moment, you know, when, when things are at their lowest ebb, leads almost immediately to the epiphany, the insight. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's such a close relationship between the two? Um, I, I think it comes from real life. I mean, what that, that's just, this is how real life works. I mean, you, the, another way of thinking about the all is lost moment is it's kind of a moment when a person hits a bottom. And yeah. let's say you or I, we wake up at six in the morning, face down in a gutter, with a bottle of uh, Jim Beam beside us. And that's our, that's our all is lost moment. And suddenly we say to ourselves, oh my God, I am an alcoholic. Oh my God, I really do have a drinking problem. I've been in denial of it forever. That's the epiphany, that moment where you say, I do have a drinking problem. And then right after that, you say to yourself, I've got to turn this around. I can't go on living like this, right? So I think the all is lost moment for many writers is where they, they, they just try and try and try and they just keep failing, failing, failing. And finally, they have some catastrophic failure where they sort of it's the equivalent of waking up in the gutter face down. And they say to themselves, 
this is not working. I've got to make it. I've got to find a way to make this work. Either I'm going to stop writing, or I'm going to change the way I the way I go about it. So I think that's the epiphany following the all is lost moment. I think just reflects real life. So we're looking for the you know what what you did there. It's it, maybe it was that decision. I'm I'm going to take a different approach. This is you know I'm banging my head against a brick wall. Yeah. Or another way to look at this, Mark, and this is also I think a lot of times. In our real lives and in and in fiction, we're in denial of some some truth, right? Right. right. That we're abusing our wife, or we we really don't care about our children, or something like that. Right? We're in denial of this, or we're we're using drugs, or we're drinking, or whatever it is. And the all is lost moment is the moment when something external makes us face that denial. Right. And we stop denying. So it's not like we're having some great breakthrough where we invent nuclear physics. It's simply that we say we we accept the truth. We see the truth and we accept it. And once we accept that truth, then either we're either we change our ways or, you know, we just go into the toilet, you know. So really, that's the moment when the truth breaks through. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah which is sort of the definition of an epiphany. Yeah. Right? It's not as though we yeah. come up with some new breakthrough that we've never had. It's just we accept, you know, what's already there, been staring us in the face, but which we've refused to, uh, to acknowledge or to see. We've made ourselves deliberately blind to it. Steve, thank you so much. Hey, thank you. Great questions. So now we're going to move into the, the final thing we're going to do today. We want you to yes. be taking action. Yeah, we want you to take some of the ideas that we've explored here and go and apply them in your own life, in your own creative practice. So, Steve, I'd like to invite you to set our listeners a creative challenge. So something that they can do this week, something that is on theme in your terminology, <laughs> so it's relevant to the conversation we've had right. today, and something that, that will hopefully lead to some kind of meaningful epiphany or progress or, or a sense of... You know, something that's that's going to take them f- closer to their goals and, and further away from resistance. Okay, got it right, ready for okay, it. Okay, so, so what is it, Steve? I would set this uh, as a challenge to, uh, to our listeners here. Think, examine your own life and ask yourself, did I have an all is lost moment? And, and if so, when was it? What happened? And... What epiphany came out of that? And uh, like for me, I just told you what my lifetime all is lost moment was. And um, maybe our listeners will not have hit their all is lost moment yet. Maybe it's still in the future. Maybe they'll be lucky and they'll never have one. But I think it's, it is a very interesting thing to ask yourself, where was the all is lost moment and the epiphany moment in my life? And Usually, in fact, I'll say always, it's a real um, watershed moment. It's a turning point. You say that your life prior to that moment was one life, and your life since that moment has been another life. And I think I think this is a good exercise, um, and and will help um, as a uh, help us all as a, as writers to uh, keep that concept in mind of what the, of hitting bottom and then making a change. And if you watch 
movies and read books. Look for the all is lost moment. You'll, you'll see it in almost every one. Thank you, Steve. That's a great challenge. So the challenges for completion by the end of this week, that's Friday the 9th of June. And if you'd like to take part, keep listening after the interview and I'll explain how it works. Steve has generously given three copies of his new book, The Knowledge, which we'll be giving to three of you who take part in the challenge. So like I say, if you want to take part and have a chance of winning the books, then keep listening after the interview. So, Steve, tell us more. Where can we find the knowledge? Where can we find you online? Where should people uh, go? The knowledge, it's on Amazon. It's also on my own little uh, publishing company, which is uh, www.blackirishbooks.com. And uh, anybody can find me just on uh, my name, stephenpressfield.com, Stephen with a V. And... Uh, yeah, that's 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 it. Great. And I would add a, a rider to that. You know, when you go to the website, make sure you sign up for Steve's mailing list and get the Writing Wednesdays posts on the blog. And you also have contributions yeah, from... Sh- every yeah, yeah, yeah. From Sean and Callie also contribute as well. And it's absolutely compelling stuff for any creative. I mean, the number of times I'll forward articles that Steve's written on the blog and into a client and say, look, you've got to read this. This speaks to your situation. So read the book, sign up for the blog, the mailing list, and benefit from Steve's wisdom. Okay, Steve, thank you very much. You've been really kind and generous, as always. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what people do with your challenge. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to see myself. And thank you so much, Mark. You know, it's like I almost never give interviews except to you and like a very tiny you know, a handful of people because and anybody who listens to this can see why, because you're asked such really thoughtful questions and you really know your stuff and you're a wonderful guy. So thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Steve. That's much appreciated. In just one moment, I'll tell you how to take part in this week's creative challenge. But before that, if you're enjoying the podcast, I'd like to ask you to do one thing very quickly that will really help the show, and that's to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And if you could take a few moments to leave a short review on iTunes, telling people what you like about the show, that would be even more helpful. That's because iTunes pays very close attention to the numbers of subscribers and reviewers a podcast has. So the more people who subscribe and review, the more visible it will be in the iTunes store, and the more new listeners will find the show. This is especially important in the first few weeks of a podcast. So by subscribing and reviewing, as soon as you hear this, you're giving the 21st century creative the best chance of success. It will also help your fellow creatives discover the show and benefit from the ideas in it. And of course, it helps you as well, because every episode will be delivered to you on your phone or wherever else you like to listen, as soon as it's released. So, please visit 21stCenturyCreative.fm and press the big purple subscribe in iTunes button. Or, if you're listening on your phone right now, you'll see a subscribe button right inside the app. And if you'd like to go to iTunes and leave a quick review, that would make my day. Thanks so much for supporting the show like this. It really means a lot to me. 
So Steve has set you a great creative challenge to tackle this week. If you want to take part, here's how the creative challenge works. In Steve's words, the challenge is to examine your own life and ask yourself, did I have an all is lost moment? And if so, when was it? What happened? And what epiphany, i.e. what big insight, came out of that? As Steve says, the all is lost moment is the moment when you hit rock bottom and you really do feel that all is lost in your life or your career, that you're as far away as it's possible to get from reaching your goal and realising your dream or your ambition. But it's also a moment when you see the reality of your situation very clearly and gain a big insight from that. And somewhat paradoxically, this insight leads to a profound change in you that helps you move forwards towards the goal. So your life is very different before and after the all is lost moment. So, once you've given this some thought and you've identified your own all is lost moment, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash two, as in the numeral two, and leave a comment under the show notes describing your all-is-lost moment, the insight it gave you, and the changes you made as a result. The challenge closes at midnight United States Pacific time this coming Friday, 9th of June 2017. Obviously, if you're listening after that date, the challenge has now closed, but you can still take part in future creative challenges. When you leave your comment, please don't share confidential or sensitive information, either about yourself or somebody else. So, for example, if you're describing your all-is-lost moment and it involves somebody else, you might want to leave out their name or change it or change some of the identifying details. Okay, once the challenge has finished, I will pick three winners at random from the comments who will receive the prize Steve has kindly donated of a copy of his novel The Knowledge. I want to stress I'm picking the winners at random. I'm not going to be judging the comments because the challenge isn't a competition. Over the weekend, I'm going to send you a bonus recording with my feedback on your comments and what we can all learn from the challenge. And for this challenge, I will share my own all-is-lost moment with you. Finally, the feedback recording will not be released on iTunes or anywhere else the podcast is syndicated. It will only be available via the 21st Century Creative email list. So to join the list, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash bonus and enter your email address in the box. When you join the list, not only will you get the feedback recordings for every creative challenge after every episode, you'll also get the 21st Century Creative Foundation course, a free in-depth course to help you succeed as a creative professional. Okay, that's it for the challenge. You'll also find the instructions for the challenge in the show notes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash one. Have a great time with the challenge. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you make of it. And stay tuned for another episode of the 21st Century Creative next Monday. Monday.